Hello and welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm Logan Finney. This week, I'm joined by Stephen Miller, who's a professor at the University of Idaho College of Law. Uh, we're discussing Sackett versus Environmental Protection Agency, which is a pending case before the U.S. Supreme Court. Thanks for joining me, Stephen. Hi, Logan. Thanks for having me. So to get things started here, this case was the first one of the court's new term, and it was heard uh, in D.C. on Monday last week. It begins with the Sacketts, who were a couple who purchased a piece of property near Priest Lake, Idaho, in 2004 in the northern panhandle of the state. They began building a home on that lot in 2007, but were stopped in construction by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, because according to the agency, their property has waters, uh, has wetlands that are regulated as navigable waters under the Clean Water Act. Um, so this is a case with a lot of background, and it's a, a argument that's been going on for a long time. But for um, to get us started here, starting at a high level, what is the Clean Water Act, and what does it regulate? Sure. Yeah. So the Clean Water Act um, is really the signature uh, water quality um, water protection act in the United States. Um, it was enacted in, in 1972. And it really took um, a completely different approach to uh, regulating um, water in the United States compared to anything else the United States had done. Um, and um, at its core is a question of uh, that is at this case in this case is uh, what constitutes the jurisdiction of that um, of, of that act. Now, everyone agrees that the Clean Water Act applies to so-called navigable waters, in fact, right? That would be things like a river, um, like say the Boise River. But the question is, does the Clean Water Act also apply to other types of things like say a wetland in this case, or in other instances, ditches um, and other um, uh, man-made channels of water? So that's really what's at stake here. Um, and whether um, a particular part of the Clean Water Act, so, um, so-called Section 404, which requires a permit to fill a wetland, um, would require the Sacketts and other developers and farmers in particular um, to get permits before they fill in a wetland. So I introduced um, very briefly the Sacketts in their case here, but you're a little bit more specific, familiar with the specifics can you tell me about the Sacketts and their piece of property and what arguments they're making before the court? Sure, yeah, and the, the Sacketts get really different treatment in the different briefs, so I'll try to um, split it down the middle and kind of um, as to what I, I think, if we read between the lines, kind of what's going on. Um, you know, the Sacketts, they, um, they argue that they are, um, you know, a, a couple that is trying to build a modest home um, and that the EPA is preventing them from, from doing that. And this has gone on for almost forever, right? Since about 2007. It's already been up to the Supreme Court one time. It's gone up a second time. Um, the, the EPA puts it in a little more technical terms. They note that the Sacketts, um, they own an excavation company um, they're, and frame them more as developers. Um, they, the project is about 300 feet, so about a football field from Priest Lake. There is also a tributary of a fen, um, a, a larger, the Kalispell Fen, which is a larger wetland complex that is right next to the Sackets, and in fact, the property used to be on that. So, you know, um, and in 
in the um, EPA's brief, they note that in 1996, they actually had told the prior owner to the Sacketts that they believed that the property was within the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, utilizing um, a test called the Significant Nexus Test, which we'll get to in a bit. The Sacketts, though, they got both permits to build from the local government and went ahead and proceeded, um, and the EPA uh, told, came out after they received a complaint and noted that the Sacketts had placed about 70, 1,700 square um, cubic feet of fill into the land. Um, the Sacketts don't dispute that they have wetlands um, on their property. What they're disputing is whether they're within the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act and therefore, can um, whether the um, whether the they have to get one of these permits, which can be expensive and um, difficult to to maintain and get. Sure. So really, this boils down to how how you draw the line between what gets regulated by the federal government and the Environmental Protection Agency versus what gets regulated by something more local like the Department of Environmental Quality, for example. That's, that's right. And, you know, just to give a sense of it, right, the, what, what is it, how much land is at stake here? It's actually quite a lot, right? Um, the EPA estimates that about half of the wetlands that were originally in the country prior to exploration have been filled, right? So if you were to go back to 1600 compared to now, um, about half of the wetlands in the United States have been filled. There was dramatic increase in fill um, with suburban development from the 1950s to the 1970s. And the amount of wetlands left in the United States in the lower 48 um, is estimated at about the size of California, right? So it's a huge amount of land, right? Uh, and it's in, and so, um, you know, what some of the um, amicus briefs like the Chamber and the US Chamber of Commerce and the Home Builders Association focused on is that um, under the current um, framework, it's just really uncertain. There's a lot of uncertainty for developers and farmers as to whether they have to fill um, and they would prefer more certainty um, in the regulatory environment. And of course, what they would ultimately want is um, more certainty in a way that that uh, um, you know um, limited the jurisdiction of the Army Corps. Absolutely, um, and we referenced that part of this fight has been that the EPA wanted the Sacketts to get a permit from the Army Corps. Um, so, jumping off from there, can you tell me a little bit more about what sort of extra regulations come into the picture when the Clean Water Act is? Um, sorry, let me ask that again. What extra regulations come into the picture when a piece of water is regulated under the Clean Water Act? How how much heavier is that federal hand compared to the local? Yeah, so um, it depends, and that's part of uh, you know the, the the chamber's argument, um, uh, you know, in, in the amicus brief. But um, so here's what if you if you're within the jurisdiction of a of a for, of a wetland, right? You uh, uh, there's a special permit that's needed for so-called dredge or fill, right? Which is what, you know, developers do to level a site or sometimes farmers need to do to, to be able to farm a certain area. And, um, and so the, under that, there's two different types of permits, a so-called general permit um, and an individual permit. The general permits cover small scale fills um, and they really aren't a big deal. Um, you, you, they're not that 
problematic um, for the, the developers. What is problematic is if you need to get an individualized permit and that can take a lot of time and a lot of consulting fees. Um, you know, there's estimates that these individual permits can cost upwards of $250,000 um, or more um, in consulting fees. And there's also project delay. So the, the, that is the, the, the concern. Um, the other thing that you typically have to do with these permits is you um, have to show that you have um, taken feasible, um, met, um, uh, feasible actions to mitigate the harm to the wetland and um, are, or otherwise mitigate it through offsite mitigation or pay in the blue fees. So, you're either going to you're getting into the world then of either trying to change your site plan or um, pay some sort of fee to mitigate that uh, loss of the wetland offsite. So that's that's what happens if you get if you are within that jurisdiction. Sure, obviously it's interrupted the Sackett's plans to build uh, for longer than ten years now, so it's it's definitely a consideration for people. Um, and something that I found interesting here is that this is a case before the U.S. Supreme Court, but they're not necessarily asking the court to draw the line for them. They're, this is actually an argument about what's the proper method for deciding how to draw the line. It gets really in kind of into the weeds here. So now let's get to that that concept of a nexus between a wetland and the navigable water and kind of the history of the court cases here, because you know, if I'm remembering my my U.S. history right, it was the the 1970s when this big environmental regulation push happened at the federal level. So why is it now, 50 years later, that we're still disagreeing about how to decide what the EPA gets to regulate and what they don't? Yeah, it's a great question, and you know, um, I I think that it goes to the, the the sweep and the language of the Clean Water Act that was you know, purposefully vague, but also really was trying to go beyond what had pre the, the prior water law um, uh, regulations that were primarily in um, water quality standards and something called the Rivers and Harbors Act, um, which was a very old law. And, um, you know, in 1972, when the act was passed, originally the first effort to try to design, define what the jurisdiction was only went with um, these navigable waters, in fact. And they said, well, just we're just going to look at things like the rivers, right? The Boise River, et cetera. That actually, in the 1970s, was a very unpopular position. The, the people, um, it was politically unpopular. Members of Congress spoke out against it. And the courts ultimately struck it down. And that led the EPA then, under both Republican and Democratic administrations, to, to um, broaden the, the scope beyond um, just traditional navigable waters. But then the, the question becomes, where do you draw that line? Um, and once you go beyond the, just the water, you, you know, obviously the whole water system is interconnected with land, right? Waterfalls, runs down um, and, and back to those rivers, right? So that becomes a question of how you draw that line. And so there's been a whole back and forth in several cases, um, and with regard to these wetland issues, what happens is that beginning in the late 1970s, you have um, uh, regulations that um, place certain wetlands um, in, into the scope of the Clean Water Act and give voice to this 404 permit, permitting process. 
But then you have, and then you have a case called Riverside Bayview, which um, where you had a, a home that was about 200 feet from um, uh, a, a navigable, a traditional navigable water or navigable water, in fact. Um, and the Supreme Court upheld that as being um, in a, a wetland within the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act. And then you had a case called Swank, um, where they, where the uh, EPA had tried to assert jurisdiction over all wetlands that were used by migratory birds. And the Supreme Court struck that down. Um, in that case, one of the wetlands was 11 miles from a navigable water. And the court said, no, that's too far. And that then leads us to the essence of this case, which a case was, was a case called Rapanos, in which the court had a split. And um, four justices, including Justice Scalia, uh, wrote, um, um, a test where they, they it was a two-part test where they said that um, that wetlands could be um, that the that that the Army Corps could could regulate wetlands um, that satisfied a two-part test. First, that they were adjacent, they were in an adjacent channel to the navigable water, and that there was a continuous surface connection. But the thing is, uh, Scalia only got four vote four votes for that. The fifth vote which also voted to, um, in, in this case, to uh, for the majority, was that of Justice Kennedy. And he went with a different test, which was called the significant nexus test, which did not look at whether there was a surface connection, but instead was more based upon the science and the hydrological flow and the connections um, with that navigable water. So the question after Rapanos was, who's going to prevail? The Kennedy test, which is broader based upon science, or the, um, uh, the Scalia test, which is based, um, it's often boiled down to the so-called um, continuous surface connection test. And here what Sackett is saying is they want the Scalia test and they note that in their case, there is a road that cuts between the traditional navigable water and their property. And they're saying that therefore there cannot be a continuous surface connection. And so they think that they would win under the Scalia test, but probably lose under the Kennedy test. And the Ninth Circuit below applied the Kennedy significant nexus test and the Sackets lost. So what they're saying is, um, we believe that the correct test from Rapanos was not the Kennedy test, but the Scalia test. And if you really wanna boil it down to what's the essence of the Scalia test? Well, you need to be able to look and see a connection of water on the surface between the navigable water and the wetland. Sure, that makes sense. So their argument would be for the EPA to have jurisdiction here, you should have to be able to draw like a visible line from water where you could have a boat to where this wetland is. Whereas under the significant nexus test, um, they're saying that hydrologically there's enough water that moves underneath this road between the Sackett's property and the navigable water that that's enough of a connection for it to be regulated. Exactly. So, you know, for instance, in EPA's, you know, in 1986, when the EPA initially told the prior owner that they believed this was in the jurisdiction, they noted, well, there's also a, another tributary that's 30 feet away from your property. It drains the Kalispell Fen. You used to be part of the Kalispell Fen. There's wetlands on your property, you know, and and, and those are there. Um, 
there's some argument about whether there's subsurface drainage and which direction it goes or not. But um, the the Army Corps believed that there was sufficient um, nexus to to regulate in that way. Um, interestingly, you know what the what they what the sockets note and is that they want a bright line test to say that if there is any sort of physical um, uh, barrier, such as a road or a berm, that that would be uh, that there just simply could not be jurisdiction. And the EPA say, well, that could have says you know that could have very illogical results ultimately because sometimes you have a a, a small berm um, that is created as waters ebb and flow, right? Um, and then it suddenly goes away, right? Um, as rivers, especially uh, undammed rivers, um, can, can be braided and meander over time. So that's, um, you know, sort of the essence of the question. Um, and, you know, um, it's an old, old question that has just never been resolved because since the, the you know, the, the act was created, it's it's the one you know part of the question has been do we go with the certainty of just saying navigable waters and surface connections or do we go with something that maybe addresses more the more complicated science but is harder for people to actually um, uh, know what their rights are well depending on how this case goes later in the year uh, americans and idahoans might have a little bit more certainty when it comes to waters of the united states Professor Stephen Miller with the University of Idaho College of Law. Thanks so much for joining me this week. Thanks for having me. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Marcia Franklin, the producer and host of Dialogue. For more than 25 years, we've been bringing you conversations that matter. More than 150 of those conversations are with writers, and now you can take them with you wherever you go, while you're walking, around the house, or in the car. Just search for Dialogue with Marsha Franklin on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms, and remember to subscribe so that new shows download automatically. Enjoy.